Welcome to Practical Philanthropy with me, Lynn Tomlinson, the podcast where inspirational people share their experience of giving their time, their skills or money to help others. As Head of Impact at Casanova Capital, I help people who want to do good do just that, whether that's through how they allocate their investment capital or through their charitable giving. And I'm absolutely obsessed with getting people who are thinking about giving their wealth away or investing for impact get stuck in and get going. Today you'll hear from Alex Chapman, who is Chair of Ethiopiaid and a trustee of the Reed Foundation. Ethiopiaid has grown over 30 years from a family foundation into one that is primarily funded by their fundraising efforts and the public. During that 30 years, and under the guidance of Sir Alec Reed and his daughter Alex, Ethiopiaid has granted over 70 million to partners in Ethiopia. And I'm really excited and grateful to have Alex with me today because She has such a wealth of experience and knowledge that we can all learn from. And I have a million questions for her, such as, how do you find, fund and build relationships with grassroots organisations in a country which is over 5,000 miles away? How do you gain their trust and understand what they need from you in order to deliver programmes that can deliver great outcomes for the people that you are trying to help? And how do you even identify what those people need in the first place? But before we get into that, Alex, welcome to Practical Philanthropy. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you for inviting me to take part in this podcast. Um, Yeah, it's an honour to have this opportunity to talk about international giving, which is a subject I'm really passionate about. Fantastic. And before we get into the details of that, can you just tell me how you introduce yourself if you're at an awful network event and someone sidles up to you and asks you what you do? (laughs) Um, Well, interestingly, I probably wouldn't describe myself as a philanthropist. Um, I'm probably more likely to say, you know, I work in the charity sector or Mm. I'm a fundraiser or grant maker. Um, I think I think of my father more as a philanthropist because he's given you know significant yeah. amounts to charity and he's founded the Reed Foundation and various other charities. Um, but I do believe I'm sort of continuing and building on his legacy, um, maybe on a smaller scale and less less public. Um, but I think philanthropy is very individual and there are lots of different ways of doing it. Um, so yes, perhaps perhaps I should inhabit <laughs> that identity more and say I am a philanthropist. Yeah, well, it's actually such a grand word, isn't it? That's just really meant to describe the, the desire to give back and help other people, isn't it? So we did have, um, well, I did think about, should we call this podcast Practical Philanthropy? Because most people, like you say, like yourselves, just don't think of themselves as, as philanthropists. So thank you for that. And what about your professional life? What are you doing in your professional life as well as your charitable mm. giving? So uh, originally I, I worked in television, um, in documentary mm. filmmaking, and um, more recently, I have retrained as a counsellor. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Have you brought any of that sort of professional experience into your philanthropy, like the filmmaking side or the documentary side? Yes, definitely. I've worked on several documentaries internationally, um, one in Uganda about um, refugees fleeing Uganda um, uh, because they're LGBT um, and yeah. they're trying to bring in the death penalty there. And also in Ethiopia, I've made some short films as well. 
Yeah, perhaps we'll cover that a bit more when we talk about this enormous gap between, you know, local and, and international giving, which I know you'll give us some great insight on. So um, so some of the people that are going to listen to you today will be drawn by the desire to give internationally, but they're probably wondering just where on earth you'd start. So can you tell us about those earlier years and why the family specifically decided to fund that specific country? Um, yes, I guess, I mean, my father was a very successful entrepreneur. Um, he came from a fairly humble background. So when he, you know, was successful and made a lot of money, he wanted to give something back. Um, and it was during the 1980s when there was the terrible famine in Ethiopia. Mm. Um, and it was in the news a lot. And he met an Ethiopian woman, Jemba Tefara, in London. And she was actually a wonderful fundraiser and had her own charity in Addis Ababa. And she persuaded him to visit the projects, which was quite extraordinary, really. He'd never travelled outside <laughs> Europe. I'm amazed she managed to persuade him. But he and my mother went out there in the 80s. And I think when he first thought um, he was going, he would be off able to offer some of his sort of business experience. But when he arrived, he was so um, shocked by the level of poverty that he realised a sort of longer term solution was needed. And it was really a kind of awakening. And um, when he came back to the UK, um, soon after he came back, he founded Ethiopia Aid. I want to take a moment to hone in on something really important that Alex has just said. Quite often, people think that philanthropy has to be incredibly strategic, that you need to have a plan. And whilst that's certainly helpful, time and time again, we see some really great work come out of going with the flow, of being inspired by one individual like Gemba Tafara, or being made aware of an issue on the media which just grabs you and makes you think, I've just got to do something about this. Here Alex talks about the family's journey to Ethiopia today, which began by her father being inspired and made aware of the issues in Ethiopia and him stepping way out of his comfort zone into an area he knew nothing about, but with a really open mind. And this is something that I'd really encourage people to do, to follow your gut sometimes, to find out more, as you never know what direction it will take you in. So when he arrived, obviously, you mentioned that he was just, you know, shocked by the extent of the poverty. So how how have you as a, an organisation gone about focusing on, and working out where your money can or the, the money that you raise can really make a, a big difference in that country? Mm. I think I think we've always focused very much on tangible results. So, I mean, the very first intervention uh, he did on a personal level before he founded Ethiopia Aid, was um, he noticed in Addis Ababa there was a lot of sewage just running through the streets mm. and children playing in it. So the very first intervention was to buy a big suction truck, <laughs> literally went and <laughs> sucked the sewage out of the streets. And so it was a very sort of practical intervention with a very sort of tangible result. And in some ways, we still, a lot of our projects are very like that. Um, you know, we we may train midwives where it's very, so again, a very tangible result for your funds. You know that you can train so many um, people to become midwives or we, um, another project, we support um, street children's breakfast. So again, you know, it's very obvious how, how many breakfasts your funds can pay for. So I think yeah. in a country uh, like Ethiopia and working from such a distance, um, that that um, increases our impact and, and um, yeah, ma makes, 
makes the results much more obvious, I guess. And how do you find those particular partners? Is that something you do on your own or, or how, how does that work practically? Do you work with any of the largest or NGO, the big international charities? How does mm. that work? There's sort of various um, routes, really. I mean, in times of humanitarian crisis, um, we often do partner with other um, uh, bigger INGOs. But we tend to try and find small grassroots organisations we can work with. And we do that through um, various means. We have a small grants programme um, where we invite small local grassroots organisations to apply for funding up to 20,000. They're small grants. And these are often very tiny organisations that may not have had international funding before. And that's a really good way for us to test out um, how good they are at delivering programmes, how easy they are to work with, um, how transparent um, and um, how well they are at reporting. And through that, we have now got four or five longer term partners that we've discovered through that route. Um, We also take referrals from other other charities um, and maybe in country when we're visiting, we might we might get a um, you know, a suggestion or recommendation from uh, the British Council, British Embassy or um, other NGOs, you know, saying you should go and look at this work. This is really excellent. And then we do a kind of field visit um, to see if we feel they, you know, that we could work together and we have similar values. Yeah, you mentioned that these are tiny organisations, but they have these enormous ambitions, don't they? I was reading about some of them on on the Ethiopia website. And what Mm. struck me is that the leaders of those organisations really want to sort of be the best in in the country delivering those those programmes. How do you how do you identify that that brilliant leadership? Is that or is it just really obvious when you when you come across it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think leadership is absolutely key uh, to have um, someone who has the skills and passion to to um, run some of these organisations. But we do also do a lot of work to build capacity. So the so the uh, local NGOs we're working with, you know, we we um, we will invest in trying to strengthen their management or financial management, their ability to monitor and evaluate. Um, and I think that's key to help organisations. Um, become fit for funding, we call it, so that other funders will be attracted to them. So it won't just be us supporting them. Um, to make them sustainable, they need other funders. Uh, so that that's an important part of our work. And that's quite um, innovative, isn't it? That that style of uh, financing, that capacity building. Mm. Is that something that that you've done over the thirty years of Ethiopia, or has that been relatively more recent? I think that's been relatively more recent. But what we've always done is offered unrestricted funding. So a a lot of funders want to fund a particular project. And obviously, some projects are a lot more attractive to funders than others. But there's all the boring jobs that also need to be funded, like, you know, the administrative assistant or, you know, (laughs) someone to pay, um, yeah, for for office cleaning, you know, different, um, you know, very, very sort of boring things that that funders are not interested in. Um, And of course, for, for an organisation to be sustainable and to carry on running projects continuously, they, they need some unrestricted funding as well. So, yeah. so you know, we have been willing to give that as well. And I, I, I think um, our partners really appreciate that. 
Alex has just described here something that we would really encourage people to do, and that's to provide unrestricted funding. As she has talked about, this means letting the organisation you are funding use your money on whatever they need it for. And if you're finding yourself in a situation where perhaps you don't want to provide unrestricted funding to an organisation, it's a really good time to just pause and ask yourself this question, and that's what is stopping you? Perhaps there is something you're unsure of within the team or in the delivery of the projects, and therefore maybe you haven't found the right charity partner. One option here, rather than to walk away and not to fund, is to give the organisation a smaller amount of funding initially and just see how they get on with it. And that's a really important point, isn't it? Because I think one of the one of the challenges I, I hear from clients is that, um, you know, particularly with the large international charities, is that they worry about how much money is spent on, like you say, the, the fundraising or keeping the organisation going. And is there, are there any sort of best practice around that in terms of what people should be looking for when it is it has gone beyond um, what should be reasonable? Or is that very difficult? Is it dependent on each charity? Um, I mean, I'd always be conscious if I was looking to support a charity to see how many pence in the pound is spent on fundraising. Mm. Um, and I think, um, I mean, I'm biased, of course, but I, I, I do think um, that small or medium sized charities, the, the, the um, gap, I guess, between the donor and the beneficiary is smaller. There are less, less layers of kind of hierarchy and bureaucracy. Um, and less money wasted. You know, you can be more agile as a smaller organisation and you can certainly respond to crisis quicker. I mean, we had a situation last year where one of our partners in Afar, um, there was a terrible um, uh, kind of swarm of locusts, an infestation which was affecting the crops and our partner appealed for funds and we were able to send funds out within a week well, um, she told us that she was, you know, three or four months later, she was still waiting to hear back from the larger agencies. Certainly a benefit from uh, working with smaller organisations. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point because it's that responsiveness, isn't it, that you you really need in those times of crisis, well, any at any time. But so if we think about the likes of Ethiopia and other foundations like yours, um, do you think they fill that gap? Because if you're, um, you know, where you are, where you've you've sort of established effectively a, a business around around philanthropy, and you raise funds every year. Um, but if you're not in that situation, like like maybe you're just starting out, either as a family or an individual, and you want to give in in a, in an area that's quite challenging, either because of distance or perhaps knowledge, um, but you don't want to fund through those larger charities because they're just it just feels like a big black hole even if you know they're doing great work it's just that there's a big distance is that something that you think foundations such as yours and others that they they fill that gap yes definitely I think they're a good sort of conduit because if if you're starting out and you don't have the expertise in country it can be very daunting and, and you can easily make mistakes um, so I think um, to get some advice, I mean, you know, Ethiopia Aid have been working in Ethiopia for 30 years, so we have good contacts and a lot of experience. I mean, you could possibly start up your own foundation and, and, and hire in expertise. Um, but I definitely feel to begin with, you need you need that support to make sure you're 
um, funding the right projects and um, you know the money is going to have the greatest impact and to mitigate risk. And could you, without sort of names, just give us an example of, of people that are funding you um, as an organisation, sort of work that you do with them and, and perhaps how you communicate with them, actually, to sort of let them know what, what the great work you're doing? Mm. I think, I mean, I think we're, we're very approachable as an organisation and we have very close links with our major donors. Um, we invite them to Ethiopia and many of them do come out and see the work firsthand, which I think is really key. Um, we listen to them, <laughs> how much they want um, to be communicated with. I mean, some some donors like to be very, very closely involved in the projects. Others like to keep it at an arm's length, but, you know, like to receive a report from time to time that they know their money is being well spent. So I guess it's very bespoke um, to the donors' needs. Yeah. And can we talk about this, um, which we touched on at the beginning, this public awareness um, piece, because um, one of the things that we wanted to solve for, one of the objectives of, of having this podcast, is that we really wanted to raise awareness of, of areas of philanthropy that are really underfunded. So there's great statistics around the environment, for example, there's sort of less than 2% of funding globally goes towards climate philanthropy even though it's so important to so many people so could you tell us a little bit about um the sort of gap that you see in funding for the likes of Ethiopia and we saw this with them um, with the floods in Pakistan versus the potential outpouring of, of donations that you see towards Ukraine and, and Notre Dame for example mm. yeah I mean it's very difficult um but I guess it's understandable. I mean, the media plays a big role in this. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously, there's been very little media about what's going on in Ethiopia. I mean, I think the British public generally have very little idea of the of the extent of um, displacement and food insecurity in northern Ethiopia. And that's partly because the Ethiopian government itself had a, a media blackout. So it was very difficult yeah. to get any sort of independent stories out of that region. But the media in the in the UK didn't really pick up on it at all. I mean, Channel Four and the Guardian run, you know, did run some articles, but it was very limited. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part, partly also due to kind of personal connection. That obviously people in in the UK feel much closer to to um, Ukraine. You know, that the idea of war in Europe that it could escalate. Yeah. You know, people may have family or friends that have taken in um, Ukrainian refugees. So it feels much more on the doorstep and there's much more of a sort of personal connection. But I guess my frustration is, you know, the world is is becoming increasingly a smaller place and things that are happening in other places, you know, the huge impacts of climate change, the massive displacement of millions of people yeah. is, you know, on our doorstep already and going to increasingly be so. And uh, there's so much disparity in the world um, that I think, you know, we all need to do more um, to help with the situation. And you mentioned that you'd made a documentary about the Ugandan refugees. Mm. Is that something that you think you have a role to do with your with your background in documentary making? Is that something that you've done as part of EPOPA to raise that awareness? Because I know with the, the Netflix documentaries around biodiversity and climate, they've been quite helpful, I think, mm. in raising that awareness. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, was, I, it, was that very difficult to do? It sounds like such an easy <laughs> thing to say, but is that really difficult to get on the, the, the you know, the, the newsreel, as it were? Um, yes, definitely. I think it's hard to get things commissioned. Um, but I think what we do at ETO Parade in any way we can is to amplify voices, you know, of the people we work with, you know, whether that's through documentary film, um, through... Um, interviews, letters we write, you know, in any way we can, we try to amplify their voices so that, um, you know, there's more awareness of what's going on there. Do you think the barrier is um, more about the complexity of giving in these far-flung places or a lack of a lack of awareness? Um, I think it's probably a little bit of both. Um, you know, obviously it's it's much harder. You know, Ethiopia is over five thousand miles away. Um, you know, a lot of people here won't have direct connections there. I mean, it's interesting that a lot of our our donors have got some kind of association with Ethiopia. You know, they may have lived there as a child. They may have been there on holiday. Okay. They may be a medic who's worked there. You know, so there is is quite a personal connection. Um, so yes, I I think it, it I think it probably is a little bit of both. So what makes a good donor, Alex? I would say all donors are good. <laughs> you know, that they... Exactly. They come in many different guises, but they're all good because they're actually donating. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, I think being a good donor, it's, it's very much about listening, interestingly. You know, when, when I... Um, go to Ethiopian visit projects. I think it's really important to to listen and for there to be a kind of um, a kind of respect between between the funder and the project. Um, and I, it's really interesting what you can glean from asking lots of questions and listening. Um, and then I would also advise donors who you know was, wanted to support an organisation like Ethiopia Aid you know, to do their research, to to um, look up a charity on the Charity Commission, to look at their accounts, you know, see how much they have in reserve, um, see how sustainable the organisation is, and, and then ask to maybe go and talk to key people in the organisation, the CEO, even even some of the trustees, uh, to, to really um, glean if their values are similar and if, if the work is exactly what they want to support and if, you know, if they're good at delivering. And then, um, and then a good donor, I guess, from an organization's point of view, is, is someone who is maybe willing to take risks a little bit um, and willing to be agile um, and maybe willing to fund things that not everyone else is rushing to fund. So final question then, um, what's the one piece of advice that you wish someone had given you when you were first starting out or what's the one thing that you'd love someone listening to you today to take away to help them as they sort of go on their journey yeah I think I think when I first started out um, I was quite reticent or a bit shy about um, stepping into philanthropy so I guess my my advice would be to other people who are beginning their journey is is to be as proactive as you can really um, and to start some conversations because you know it's a great opportunity to make a difference you've got the potential to transform people's lives and you know in so doing expand your own knowledge and horizons and I certainly you know my life has been so much richer thanks to the people I've met and the projects I've been involved in in Ethiopia 
And yeah, I'd encourage other people to give it a go. Give it a go. Fantastic. That's the perfect ending. So, well, thank you so much for your time and your insights and your candor. It's been absolutely brilliant listening to you. I've learned an awful lot and I'm sure our listeners have. And so finally, where where can our audience follow the brilliant work that you're doing? Um, is it online? Where's the best place for them to go? Yes. Uh, well, we've got a fantastic website, www.ethiopia.org.uk. You can always um, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or, you know, if anyone wants to email me directly, I'm very happy to hear from you. My email is alexandra at ethiopiaid.org.uk. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much. One of the things I love most about what Alex had to say to us today was just hearing how much philanthropy has brought to her personally and how much better her life has been because of the work that she's done within her charitable giving. I was also really struck by this concept of getting organisations what she calls fit for funding, i.e. to provide initial funding to very small organisations and help them strengthen their teams so that they can then go on to raise further funding from from larger organisations. And this so-called capacity building is a really innovative approach to philanthropy, which as you can hear has brought Ethiopia much success through their small grants programme. And we're going to cover how you go about making small grants to small charities in more detail on a later podcast. So do look out for that. And finally, thank you so much for listening to our first podcast on giving. If you have any questions on philanthropy or impact investing, you can reach me on LinkedIn or at lynn.tomlinson at casanocapital.com.